0: Arthur J. Strack writes about an NBA basketball game that he once attended. This game ended rather strangely. Dallas Mavericks point guard, Derek Harper, dribbled the final six seconds off the clock. Even though Harper's team, was, uh, the score was tied, and they could have used the, the seconds to win the game, Harper thought, that his team was up by a point. And so he dribbled away those six seconds. The Mavericks could have used the time that he wasted to win the game. In fact, they ended up losing in overtime. Strack wrote afterwards, dribble, 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 go the seconds, the minutes, the hours, the days, the years of our lives. How often have you dribbled away valuable seconds you could have used to win the game? You could have won a prize, the prize for knowing Christ. You could have won a reward for serving God. You could have won a lost soul to Jesus Christ. Instead, we dribbled away the seconds. It was like we had time to waste instead of a game to win. Well, Paul's goal in chapters 4 and 5 is to help us to avoid that mistake. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, his sights are set on eternity. Paul is focused on the judgment seat of Christ, and he encourages us not to waste a single second. Chapter 5 begins, For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God. A house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Now in ancient times, <clears throat> a Jewish rabbi not only studied the scriptures, but he also learned to trade. Paul worked with canvas. He made sails and tents. Acts chapter 18 tells us that when he first arrived in Corinth, he found a Jewish couple there named Aquila and Priscilla. And he stayed with them for the 18 months that he was in town. Verse 3 of Acts chapter 18 explains their connection. Because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked. For by occupation, they were tent makers. Rather than burden the believers in Corinth, Paul worked a job and paid his own way. Paul was the preacher who also made tents. In the early days of our church... We had very little financial backing, so I worked a warehouse job to support my family. To this day, when a pastor works a second job to make ends meet, we say it's his tent-making job. My point is, is that Paul knew about tents. And he opens chapter 5 by comparing our bodies with a tent. He paints a contrast. Our earthly bodies are like a portable tent whereas our heavenly bodies are like a building. A cloth tent is fragile and flimsy and subject to the elements. A brick building, in contrast, is strong and stable. It offers max protection. A tent is meant to be a temporary dwelling, whereas a building is a permanent structure. It's amazing that here in verse 1, the apostle describes the most dreadful moment in a person's life. I mean the event that we're all hoping to prolong as long as possible, our death. He talks about it as simply striking a tent, just pulling up a few pegs, collapsing a couple of poles, folding up the canvas. You know, in our culture, death gets depicted as the grim reaper, a sinister character who kills and steals for most people, death is frightful, but not for Paul. To him, the hassle was life in this human body. Death was a relief. It was like striking a tent and moving back into the house. Reminds me of the night Sherlock Holmes and his trusty assistant, Mr. Watson, Dr. Watson, they went camping. Well, around midnight, Holmes nudges Watson awake and he tells him, he said, Watson, look up into the night sky and tell me what you see. Watson says, well, I see the glory of God. The heavens truly declare his handiwork. I'm also reminded of God's sovereignty. He orders the orbits of all the heavenly bodies, and he rules the universe. Certainly, the night sky tells us of our own smallness, that we live on a tiny little planet amongst millions of stars. And finally, well, I guess a cloudless night informs us of a beautiful day tomorrow. That's when Watson turns and he asks Holmes, he says, and what do you see, Sherlock? Sherlock Holmes responds, someone stole our tent. (laughs) One day, your tent and my tent are going to be gone. Paul uses the word destroyed. It means to take down or to disassemble. Literally, we'll be folded up like a tent. The bodies that we're currently inhabiting are temporary dwellings. Even though most people want them to be, they were never meant to be permanent. They serve us only for a short time. They are collapsible tents. And some of our tents are collapsing more than others. I know a lot of you like to go camping, but not me. Sorry. My problem isn't sleeping under the stars or enjoying the outdoors. I just hate all the effort that goes into camping. I mean, what's the big deal? You pack up, you set up, you build the fire, you go through a can of bug spray, and then you go back and tear it all down, all for just a few hours outside. To me, going to all that effort to set up a tent in a campsite is a hassle. And so are these tent-like bodies. Think of the time and energy and money we waste maintaining our bodies. For starters, I have to refuel mine three times a day, sometimes in between. Even my car runs a week on a tank of gas. I also have to park my body for a few hours each night. A body requires frequent oil changes, it needs a daily wash and wax. And to top it all off, I'm constantly driving it into the mechanic for repairs. To be quite honest, after 58 years, it's time for a new model. The upkeep on this old one is costing me too much. The odometer has flipped over. It's breaking down. It's harder to crank in the mornings. And yet I still need it to get around. Paul says that one day we'll swap these temporary and troublesome tents For more permanent structures, Christians have been promised a building from God. Paul spoke of this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Here's a few excerpts from that chapter. He writes There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural and afterward the spiritual. I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. At the rapture... When Jesus airlifts His church, our mortal bodies will be transformed into eternal, glorified bodies. Believers at the time and the bodies of Christians who have died in the faith will undergo an instant metamorphosis. We'll have a body like Jesus after His resurrection. Our heavenly bodies will be made from elements no longer subject to decay or to deterioration. Imagine your heavenly body won't have to be refueled, or rested, or repaired. A glorified body won't have to be set up or torn down. It's permanent. In your perfected body, you'll be able to take all your time, all your energy, and spend it on worshiping Jesus. One day, the spirit of every believer will be given the keys to hassle-free housing. We'll get glorified bodies. Once a family, they had a little ritual that they conducted whenever one of the children's pet goldfish died. Mom, dad, brother, and sister, they'd all gather in the bathroom around the commode. Two-year-old Drew would hold the fish, and five-year-old Alexis, she would say a prayer, and then both children would drop the fish in the toilet and flush him to fish heaven. One such solemn occasion, after the goldfish had been sent to heaven, the little girl she asked her mom if Grandpa, who had died a few years earlier, was also in heaven. The mom said confidently, Yes, honey, he is. That's when the little boy asked, Who flushed him? <laughs> well, when the Lord returns for his church, we'll all flush these pup tent style bodies and we'll receive immortal, incorruptible bodies that will last for all eternity. In the meantime, we're stuck living. In a very tentative tent. I ran across this past week a letter, a letter written and addressed to Mr. Tentmaker. I'll read it to you. It was nice in this tent when it was strong and secure and the sun was shining and the air was warm. But Mr. Tentmaker, it's scary now. My tent is acting like it's not going to hold together. The poles seem weak, and they shift with the wind. A couple of the stakes have wiggled loose, and worst of all, the canvas has a rip. It no longer protects me from the beating rain and stinging flies. It's scary in here, Mr. Tentmaker. Last week, I was sent to the repair shop, and a repairman tried to patch the rip. It didn't help much, though, because the patch pulled away from the edges. Now the tear is worse. What troubled me most, Mr. Tentmaker, is that the repairmen didn't seem to notice that I was still in the tent. They just worked on the canvas while I shivered inside. I cried out once, but no one heard me. I guess my real question is, why did you give me such a flimsy tent? I can see by looking around the campground that some of the tents are much stronger and more stable than mine. Why, Mr. Tentmaker, did you pick a tent of such poor quality for me, And even more importantly, what do you intend to do about it? Well, Mr. Tentmaker must have gotten the letter because he issued a reply. Here's his response. Oh, little tent dweller, as the creator and provider of tents, I know all about you and your tent, and I love you both. I made a tent for myself once and lived in it on your campground My tent was vulnerable, too, and some vicious attackers ripped it to pieces while I was still in it. It was a terrible experience, but you'll be glad to know they couldn't hurt me. In fact, the whole occurrence was as a tremendous advantage because it is this victory over my enemy that frees me to be a present help to you. Little tent dweller, I am now prepared to come and live in your tent with you if you will invite me. You will learn as we dwell together that real security comes from me being in your tent with you. In the storms, you can huddle in my arms and I'll hold you. When the canvas rips, we'll go to the repair shop together. Someday, little tent dweller, your tent will collapse, for I've only designed it for temporary use. When it does, we'll leave together. I promise not to leave before you do. Then free of all that would hinder or restrict, we'll move to our permanent home and together forever rejoice and be glad. That's our hope, isn't it? We have a building from God, a habitation in the heavens. Verse 3 continues, for in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation which is from heaven. You know, someone humorously said the real purpose of camping is to increase your appreciation of home. Well, that's definitely God's purpose for these flimsy tents. After being bogged down in these bodies, we should be groaning and yearning and longing for our heavenly home. Once there were a few friends, they were hanging out together. Someone posed the question to the others. He said, what would you like for people to say about you at your funeral? One of the friends commented, well, I hope they say I was a sincere Christian, that I cared about other people. Another fellow confessed, he said, well, I hope they say that I made a difference, that the world's a better place because I was here. The third fellow spoke up, he says, well, I hope they talk about my love for my wife and my kids. I was a good family man. Finally, the last man, he said, I hope someone cries out, look, he's moving. (laughs) It's like the old saying, everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to go right now. We'll all take a rain check. But not so with Paul. Remember the hardships that Paul endured? He was beaten with rods. He was pelted with rocks. His back ached and his eyes were infected to the point where at times it was as if little daggers were penetrating his eyes, piercing his eyes. He called them his thorns in the flesh. The condition was incurable and recurrent. Paul had little attachment to this mortal body. In fact, he said to the Philippians in chapter 1, For I am hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. Paul so longed for heaven that he had a tough time rationalizing why he should stay and remain on earth. Ultimately, it was to be of help to the church. God wasn't finished with Paul yet. But it's interesting Paul had a longing for heaven. He was torn, and it was so strong that he was torn between the two destinations. In contrast to Paul, it's amazing what some folks today will do, what they'll put themselves through just to hang on to life for a few more days. You know, modern medicine has given us the means to extend our lives beyond the bounds of yesteryear. But brutal rounds of chemotherapy excruciating treatments are often far worse than the disease. Now, I know it's easy for me to say. I've never received a terminal diagnosis. And I'm sympathetic to anyone who wants to hang on to life as long as possible to savor a few more moments with their spouse or to provide a child guidance or even to meet a grandchild. This takes bravery. But the confidence to let go comes when we realize what's before us. God promises that we'll be clothed in glorious attire. Perfect health awaits us. A heavenly body will inherit a habitation which is from heaven. There is a point, though, on which we're a little uncertain. 1 Corinthians 15 and 1 Thessalonians 4 both teach that believers won't get their resurrected bodies Until the end of the age when the church is raptured. Yet here, Paul is clear that when we go to heaven, if we go before the rapture, we'll still have a body, we'll have a habitation. So, what kind of body adorns the believers in heaven at this moment? Do they have a pre-released version of the transformed bodies that we'll be clothed in at the rapture? Do they have some kind of warm-up body, maybe a demo version? And quite frankly, I'm not sure. But what is certain is that when we get to heaven, we'll have a heavenly bod from God. We will. Heaven's like Snellville. Everybody is somebody when we get there. Here's the bigger question. Is heaven and all its glories something for which you groan and you long? Or are we so comfortable here on this earth, so fixated on the here and now, that we lack a taste for the glories of heaven? You know, the Bible refers to heaven as a fast, as a feast. Not a fast, a feast. The fast is right here. The Bible refers to heaven as a feast. You know what that means. No gluten-free in heaven. Hallelujah. No Giddy Craig. No Weight Watchers. It's a feast. The delicacies and the joys of heaven are endless. But it's not just a feast. It's a wedding feast. So if you love food and you love Jesus, you should be thinking about heaven. You have as much of both as you'll like. Lawrence was a seminary student from Africa. When it came time for him to preach his first sermon, he chose a text describing the joys that we'll all know in heaven. His sermon started, I've been in the United States for several months now. I've seen the great wealth that's here, the fine homes and cars and clothes. I've listened to many sermons in churches here too, but I've yet to hear one sermon about heaven because everyone has so much in this country, no one preaches about heaven. People here don't seem to need it. In my country, most people have very little, so we preach on heaven all the time. We know how much we need it, and I think his observation is true. You know, last week's sermon I've preached several times before, I talked about living for the spiritual, not the physical, the eternal, not the temporal, living for the invisible, not what's visible. The sermon always blesses me when I teach it, but you know, I told Kathy when I got home last Sunday afternoon that it's funny how something that blesses me so, it always sort of receives a lukewarm reaction from people. It did last week. Some of you are quick to pat me on, oh, what a great sermon. Nobody mentioned the sermon last week. And you know, I wonder, I wonder if we are guilty. If we are so comfortable in the here and now that heaven, the heaven that has been promised to us seldom gets considered in our lives. I wonder. This might be why our faith is so shallow. How can we be heavenly minded if we have no longing for heaven? In contrast, Paul says, we groan earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. If indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. You know, the Greek philosophers saw the physical body as something evil. It was completely unredeemable. The body was a prison. It was a drag on the human spirit. Epictetus referred to himself as a poor soul burdened with a corpse. Seneca said that he was a slave of the body. The Greco-Roman hope for the afterlife was to be free from this body, to be a disembodied spirit. But Paul tells us God has a greater plan for us. He's going to transform these mortal bodies into eternal bodies. The very same body that we inhabit now will one day be re- resurrected. Our spirits won't be homeless. We'll simply move from a flimsy tent into a sturdy building. He says, for we who are in this tent grown, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality is may be swallowed up by life. Understand, our redemption won't be complete until every trace of sin has been blotted out, including its effect on our bodies. You know, if you were in a car wreck and all the insurance paid for were repairs to the engine, you'd be disappointed, wouldn't you? What about some body work here? Well, God not only is a mechanic, He also has a body shop. He's not just an expert under the hood, purifying and sanctifying and energizing. He is an artist at redesigning wrecked frames and chassis. He is an expert at body work. Notice in this verse, the Christian's hope is not to be unclothed, but further clothed, better clothed. Some people think of heaven as this misty, ethereal, sort of an unearthly kind of place where the fog machine keeps everybody unrecognizable to each other. People and their mannerisms appear ghostly and ghastly. But that couldn't be further from the truth. In heaven, we're not unclothed. We are further clothed. Heaven is more substantive, not less. In heaven, you know, and you are known. You will know your loved ones. You'll grip them and hug them and embrace them. You'll know people that you have never met. Distinguishing features will be more identifiable, expressions more noticeable. Pats on the back and fist pumps and handshakes will be more palpable in heaven. Fellowship in heaven will be real and it will be hearty. If I can use the word, relationships are more earthy in heaven. We'll hug and it will matter. There'll be none of these little air hugs. In heaven. You don't really want to touch them. But be none of that kind of stuff in heaven. You, you, when you hug somebody, man, mm, it'll be a bear hug. Can't you, can you not wait to get a bear hug from Jesus? Won't that be cool? Paul says in verse 5, Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God. And understand, this is what all of life here on this earth is about. It's God's preparation for heaven. Once a deeply troubled man, he took a walk after dinner. He strolled by a construction site. Stonemasons were building a church. It was almost finished when one of the craftsmen was working feverishly. He was carving and he was chipping on a huge stone. The bypassor, he asked him, he says, why are you spending so much time on that particular block? The worker, he pointed to the nearly finished steeple way up high. And he said, I'm shaping it down here so it'll fit in up there. And bingo, that's what the man needed to hear. God is shaping us all down here so we'll fit in up there. This life and its trials are really just preparation for heaven. And God is the one who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee or literally a down payment. The spiritual life that we have now received is earnest money on the spiritual body will be given in eternity. Realize the presence of the Holy Spirit in us means there is more to come for us. Actually, the word translated guarantee in modern Greek is the word used for an engagement ring. The presence and power and peace of the Holy Spirit in our hearts is evidence that we belong to Jesus and that all His promises belong to us. The Holy Spirit in us is His token on our finger that we'll live forever with Him. Verse 6 tells us, So we are always confident knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. When we're at home in this body, we know we're absent from the Lord. Paul is saying as long as you wake up in the morning and you see your ugly mug staring back at you in the mirror, as long as your back aches and your muscles cramp and you pull a muscle, no, this is not heaven. In the morning when I wake up, even though my gorgeous wife is lying next to me, it's still not heaven. In the Lord's presence, all His peeling power is going to be washing over us. Did you know in heaven, aches will disappear? Arthritis will vanish. There is no fibromyalgia in heaven. Cancer and viruses and infections will be gone. No need for power bars or energy drinks. We won't even get tired in heaven. Chiropractors in heaven will be out of business. They'll have to learn a new trade. The Lord will see to it that we're all perfectly aligned. Of course, that's not the story at the moment, is it? Right now, Paul says, for we walk by faith, not by sight. See, here's my current dilemma. How do I confidently hope in this new body while I have to deal with the deterioration of this old body? And the answer is faith. And here faith translates into anticipation for what awaits. Do you anticipate this glorious body that you'll one day receive? That's the faith you need to endure today. Here Paul declares his faith We are confident, yes, well-pleased, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Hey, the exact second a Christian spirit evacuates their body, they go straight into the presence of Jesus. No connections. No layovers. When you depart from your earthly tent, there are no detours, no delays. Instantly, you are with the Lord. This eliminates any thought of purgatory. You know, for years, Roman Catholics teach, have taught that there is an intermediate place between this life and the presence of Jesus or heaven. And for a period of time, and of course, that depends on how dirty you were, you're required to spruce up and clean up in order to enter into God's presence. You're purged in purgatory. The only problem is, purgatory isn't biblical. You are purged at the cross. Jesus, His blood is sufficient for all of our sin, friend. If you're not, if you haven't been purged at the cross, you're not purged at all. When a believer's spirit checks out of the body, we go directly into the presence of Jesus. No pass and go, no collecting two hundred dollars. We go straight to the presence of Jesus. And this also exposes the error of what some call soul sleep. This is the idea that when a believer dies, they go into a state of suspended animation until the rapture when they receive their glorified bodies. That's not biblical. I don't believe that for a second. Bears hibernate, not the spirit of Christians. That doctrine's unbearable to me. As I've said, I'm not completely sure what kind of body we'll receive when we get to heaven, but I know we won't have to wait for one. The moment I arrive in heaven, I will spontaneously be clothed in a glorified body, in somebody. The instant we die, we enter the presence of Jesus. We receive God's building, our holy habitation. Verse 9 tells us, Therefore we make it our aim, whether present or absent, To be well-pleasing to Him. Now God wants you, Paul wants you as well, to be sure of what you'll experience after life. But more importantly, what is your aim in this life? Because that's what's going to determine what happens to you in the afterlife. We all have a target, do we not? Don't you have a target? I know I have a target. You have some priorities. You have some goals. You have some things you want to accomplish. What is your target? Paul starts with heaven and works back to Monday. He says, if I'm going to live forever with Jesus, then today I need to please Him. If all he does, in all he does, Paul's aim, his goal, is to be well-pleasing to Jesus. When you meet the Lord face-to-face, will you be ashamed? Will there be sort of an awkwardness when you meet Him? Will you be embarrassed? Or did you live for His pleasure? And this is a big deal. Verse 10 tells us, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. The term Paul uses, judgment seat, is a translation of the Greek word bima. You see, in the city center of Corinth, as in most Greco-Roman cities, at the main agora, or the marketplace, there was a raised platform. It was the judgment seat. It had huge columns. It had an elaborate stage. It had intimidating thrones. It was called the bima. And from this bima seat rewards were handed out and decisions were handed down in fact paul had been before the bima in corinth in acts chapter 18 a group of jewish antagonists in corinth had risen up against paul they had hauled him to the bema, where he was interviewed by the roman governor gallio the jews had accused paul of treason against rome but Galileo, being a smart man, saw that their beef was over religious issues and so he released Paul. But Paul had stood before this bema. He knew the tension. He knew the trepidation one feels when they come under interrogation. When your outcome is being decided. And Paul recognizes that this will be the experience of every single Christian one day. For all of us will stand before the bema of Christ and our eternal rewards will be determined. This is a big deal. Now don't confuse this judgment seat of Christ with God's great white throne of judgment. Two different things. Revelation 20 speaks of a great white throne where the lost, those who died without Jesus, will be judged and condemned and thrown into the lake of fire. This is for unbelievers. It is this bema that is for Christians. You see, our place in heaven is secured by the blood of Jesus. But our service for the Lord is going to be tried to see what kind of rewards we'll receive. Our motive will be judged. Last year, while we were in Corinth, we visited the bema sea. Today, it's in ruins. It's an archaeological dig. But I tried to imagine myself in the agora that day with Paul, standing there before the most powerful man in the region. There's actually a short little pole right in front of the bema seat. The person under inspection would stand by that pole. If any sort of punishment was due, he'd be tied to the pole. Not not that I'm deserving of any kind of punishment. Well, maybe so. I'm not sure. But if any sort of punishment was done, he was tied to the pole and he was flocked. If a reward was to be bestowed, then he would stand by the pole in honor. Every year in a locale not far away, the Greeks held an athletic competition similar to the Olympic Games in Athens. Corinth hosted the Isthmian Games. And it was here at this post, before the Bema seat, that the Laurel Reefs were awarded to the deserving athletes who had competed and who had won their races. Now Paul foresees the day when you and I will stand before our Lord's bema seat, and we'll receive from Jesus a reward for our service. Back in 1 Corinthians 3, Paul said that the quality of our work would be revealed as by fire. In verse 13, the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. So that what I did out of love for the Lord, it'll go through the fire and it'll come out as fine gold. But what we did, no matter how successful, out of selfishness or out of self-promotion or maybe even out of mere obligation, it too will be put in the fire. But it'll come out, it'll end up like dry kindling. It'll be incinerated by the fire. When it comes to how we've served Jesus, what counts is not the amount of what we've done or the appearance of it or even the outcome. It's the heart behind our service that is going to be judged and and rewarded. Our motive is what matters. Jesus inspects us to see of what sort it is. It's our attitude that's going to get sorted out. Here in verse 10, when Paul says that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. The word bad means useless or worthless in contrast to evil. Paul is implying here that it's possible to do a lot for God, and yet it all really be useless in terms of gaining for your reward if it was done from the wrong attitude and from the wrong motive. The times you taught Sunday school, grumbling, because you had to get up a little early, babysit somebody else, a snotty-nosed kid. Or the time you ushered, and you hurried folks along so you could get back to that ball game before it started. Paul says those kinds of acts of service will be like wood, hay, and straw in the fire, Oh, they might look impressive going in, but the fire of God's holiness will burn them to ashes. Whereas the time you jumped out of bed eagerly to love those little ones the way Jesus loves them, the time you led worship with a smile, you made it peppy, the time you shared your faith because you cared. Hey, when those acts of service pass through God's holiness, they'll come through unsinged like gold and silver and precious jewels. Oh, there's a lot that looks impressive on earth that will be exposed in the end as worthless in God's eyes. Whereas there are are some deeds that might escape our attention right now, but they'll be held up in heaven as precious to Jesus. Reminds me of the widow who was furious over the fact that her husband had bequeathed all his money to his secretary. His wife couldn't believe it. She'd been cut out of his will. Well, she rushed to the graveyard to have the inscription on the tombstone changed. She arrived too late. She hated spending her money on a brand new tombstone, so she figured it would be cheaper to have the undertaker carve a little addendum on the end of it. And so right after the words, rest in peace, she had him chisel until we meet again. And each of us will meet again. Each of us will meet again. One day we will meet around the Bema seat and Jesus will judge what we did for him with our lives. Did we serve him with sincerity or were our pursuits worthless and useless? Bible teacher Alan Redpath, he once shared how he had been a successful businessman. He'd been happy with his life, but God called him to ministry. He God called him to serve him in a meaningful way. And he said six words kept ringing in his head. A saved soul, a lost life. A saved soul, a lost life. A saved soul, but a lost life. It's possible to be a Christian, to be saved by the blood of Jesus, to know that your salvation is certain, yet live a wasted life. Dribble, dribble, dribble go the seconds, the minutes, the hours, the days, the years of our lives. Are we wasting time or are we winning the game?